Howdy, Gilmer. How are we doing? <laughs> Thank you. Um, you, <laughs> you probably don't know who I am, so let me introduce myself. My name is Jeff Manning. Uh, I'm one of the ministers over in Longview, and uh, I'm honored to be here. My first time to worship with the Gilmer campus last time was in January. It's my first time to ever you know, do something corporately together in Gilmer. Bless my heart. So I'm glad to be back, eager to share God's Word with you this morning. So if you would, grab a copy of your Bible, a copy of God's Word, and turn to the book of Jude. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 23 this morning as we continue through our series called Wolves Among Us. Continue through the, the letter of Jude. And if you haven't been with us so far, basically what's happened up uh, where we are to this point, Jude ha- has, has one main point One thing that he's emphasized at the beginning, he's wanted to tell the the people there to contend for the faith. That's been the one thing he's told them. And he's he's spent most of his letters so far giving us a description of what a wolf looks like. So he said, contend for the faith. Here's what you're looking for to fight against. And now we're to the point where he's kind of saying, all right, well, enough about them. Let's talk about you. So that's where we are in the letter, verses 17 through 23. He's like, that's enough talking about the wolves. Now I want to address you. So we look at verses 17 through 23, and it's just my habit to do this. I believe in honoring the word of God. And so if you're able, would you stand with me this morning as we read the word? This is what the Holy Spirit has to say through Jude to his church. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith, And praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And this is the word of God. This is one here's word this morning. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, would you pray with me that the Lord would speak in our time together? Father, we're thankful for your grace that you have spoken to us and that you have a word for us today. It passes through all the time and it meets us where we are in the seats here together. So God, would you speak, Holy Spirit, would you convict and heal and urge and exhort? Father, whatever you need to do this morning, would you do it through your word? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, when at all costs. When at all costs. Has anybody ever heard that phrase before? I heard that a lot as a kid, as someone who kind of grew up in sports. I heard a lot, a lot. When at all costs. You might have even heard it as do whatever it takes to win. That's kind of the spirit of a competitor. Win at all costs, do whatever it takes. We might even say something like, um, 
The, the ends justify the means. I've got a goal. I'll do whatever it takes to get there. I was thinking about that phrase, you know, kind of going back to last summer, we saw kind of a picture of someone who had that, that competitor's spirit. And one of the joys that showed up, it was supposed to happen in June. It showed up in April, like a little gift, um, sort of a little gift in the midst of pandemic was the series The Last Dance. Michael Jordan and the, uh, and the Bulls making the run, uh, NBA championship in that last season in 98. It was just a little gift. I was looking forward to it. I grew up huge Jordan fan. Um, I wanted to be like Mike, right? Who didn't want to be like Mike? I, I drank Gatorade, went to McDonald's. Um, I spent all of my money at the school book fair. You know, like the scholastic book fairs at the school. Spent all my money on Jordan posters. Not sure why they were there, but I bought them. Hung them on the wall. Bought the, bought the shoes. And even recently, I almost wore them today. Someone gifted me with a pair of Jordan 12s, but I didn't want to be a preacher in sneakers, and so I kept them at the house. I was looking forward to it, but to be honest, it was a little bit jolting watching it because we got to see what Michael was really like. Um, His ruthless approach wasn't just an on-the-court feature, it was an off-the-court problem. And what was revealing was that his life as a basketball player and, and who he was in everyday life were the same. Now, maybe, maybe it's admirable that he's consistent. But it was this ruthless ambition to prove to everyone that he would do whatever it takes to win at all costs. He had to be the best. Even if that meant ridiculing not only the opponents, but even his teammates and the administration and it really came home to me um, when he was inducted into the, the Hall of Fame in 2009. Anybody ever see that? Anybody ever seen this Hall of Fame speech before? It really home, came home to me because of the contrast of another person who was being inducted that night by the name of David Robinson. If you know the name David Robinson, he was a lifelong member of the Spurs. He was a 10-time All-Star. He was the Rookie of the Year. He was the 95 League champ. He was a two-time NBA champ. By all measurements, he had a winning career. And even though Jordan was the star of the night, I think David Robinson should have been the one that everybody should have been listening to. Here's the thing. Jordan gave a 23-minute speech, which I I thought in all the provenance of Jordan gave his hall of speech, 23 minutes, number 23, you get it. 23-minute speech, but here's the thing. It was full It was full of petty slights, ridicule of other players and coaches, anybody, anybody who doubted him. It's like he still had something to prove to him. He even sounded obligated to be thankful. I don't know how you're obligated to be thankful. But if you ask anybody across the board, they they, they cringed that night at what he said. Like, this is how he's going to end his career. But what did Robinson do? David Robinson got up there and gave a seven-minute speech. And before anybody else, he not only thanked his family, he told them how much he loved them, and he told them how proud he was specifically. And you can tell on their faces that this wasn't the first time that he had said those things to them. It wasn't like he was putting on a front just for the crowd. His character came through. 
He honored his coaches. He honored his teammates. He honored the people who paved the way for him. He gave credit to all those people. He had a bigger picture than just basketball. It was his life. And here's how he concluded. This is, this is the profound part. Here's how he concluded. It's his last sentence, last few words that he made for his speech. He made mention of Luke 17, the story in Luke 17 about the 10 lepers. And that story, the 10 lepers come to Jesus to be healed of their leprosy, but only one returns. And he falls at the feet of Jesus and he thanks him. And there's Robinson. Robinson said, I want to I be the one. I want to be the one who returns. God had blessed him and said that anyone who knows him, they could see God's hand guiding his life. And his last words were this. This is how he ended the Hall of Fame speech. My prayer is that he will walk with you as he has walked with me through all of my life. Thank you. Here's the thing. In terms of basketball, we could probably say that Jordan and Robinson were on the same mission. They wanted to win games. They won all the awards. They got the championships. But one person had their career defined by ruthless criticism, and the other one had their career defined by a steady love. One person's vision was, was narrow in scope. The other one expanded beyond the lines of a basketball court. One person just won games, but the other one won games, and they won people too. And here's what I think we, see, we can see in our text this morning. If we look at the book of Jude in these verses. I think we see a picture both of winning the game against false teachers and winning others back to Jesus. It's both and. It's both and. Jude is going to make a shift from his description of the wolf to a description of the beloved. A description of the wolf to the, and I love that term that he uses, to a description of the ones who are loved by God. And he urges the church to take false teachers seriously, but also not to take on the tactics of the wolf just for the sake of winning. He says they are to guard themselves, but then are to guard themselves with these ruthless tactics. Not we're supposed to embody the way that the wolves would approach things. They are to keep themselves in the love of God because God builds his church on lived gospel truth, not just the rejection of false teaching. It's not just the absence of something, it's the presence of something. So this is, I think, what Jude has to teach us this morning. It's not just that they were to keep false teaching out and to be doctrinally pure. They were to let God in and to be spiritually revived in the love of God for the sake of the world. When at all costs. And here's what the gospel does to that phrase. It redefines the when and it redefines the cost. And I think that's what we're going to see in Jude today, verses 17 through 22. So how how do we do this? How do, we, how do we get to that place where we're not just rejecting false teaching, but we're becoming God's people, right? How do we do this? I think Jude's going to share three things for us this morning. And the first thing he wants to share with us is that the way that we do this, the way we become these kind of, kind of people, is we must, we must remember that our foundation is in the gospel. I think we see this in, the, in these first few verses and the ones that came before it. How do we win against false teachers? We must be grounded in the good news of the gospel. This is the implication of what he's saying. He commands them to remember the prediction of the apostles. 
It's not that they weren't supposed to remember the rest of Scripture, the law and the prophets and the writings. We should know those things. He's saying he's building his argument on that. But he says you should remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ said repeatedly. He's saying the apostles said over and over and over and over again. Here's, here's, Here's the implication. Here's what he's saying. This thing is so close. It's so near. This problem is so near to you. You need to wake up. You have to pay attention to the problem that's around you. He said they need to repeatedly and urgently see what's going on. He says in the last time there will be scoffers. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks for this series, you already know what a scoffer is. And if you haven't been here, we've learned that they are seekers of pleasure. They're self-seeking in that way. They're self-governed. They have no regard for spiritual authority. They're spiritually arrogant. They're destructive. They're deceitful. They're disruptive. Just to name a few things that these scoffers are. He has spent most of his time in this letter describing that person. So why does Jude, at this point in this shift, go back to a description of what the scoffer is? It's because the first, it's for the first time since verse 3, he calls them beloved. He's wanting to go, that was them, now let's talk about you. He says, but you must remember, beloved. He calls them their identity, like, this is who you are. You're not them, you are beloved by God. But let's talk about how this applies to you. It's an echo from the beginning of the letter. So you're those who are loved by God. And at the moment, it's not about the wolves anymore. It's about them. Because he doesn't want to excuse them. He doesn't want to let them off the hook and let them deflect their responsibility to remember what God has said and to act. It's not just something for the wolves. This is something that should be continually happening. They should be aware of these things. I, uh, I came across a meme Last week or two weeks ago, uh, if you're not familiar with the meme, let me just define that for you. It's, uh, it's kind of a comic-like picture, uh, you know, sort of to tell a story. Um, it's, the next generation came up with it, and we're having all kinds of fun with it. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> they keep giving gifts. <laughs> or is it gifs? Anyway. That's not in here. That's not in the notes. That's free. So here's the picture. It's the same picture. It's caught in two acts. There's a speaker and a crowd. And in the first frame, the speaker says, who wants change? And all the hands fly up. Enthusiastic. Eager. We want change. That sounds awesome. Let's do it. Second frame. Speaker asks, who wants to change? Nothing. Loss of enthusiasm, a little bit disappointing, not so sure. In the first, you can see energetic. They want change, adamant about it. That's all, that sounds awesome. In the second, not so much. So what's, what's going on here? What's going on in this picture? It says, one man said, everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to change himself. Everyone wants to change the world. No one wants to change himself. And this can't be true of us, friends. This cannot be true of us. Those who have their foundation on the gospel, no one builds a foundation and then not build on it. 
We wouldn't be sitting here if we just left this slab down. No one likes living in an incomplete house. They have to build upon the foundation. So it can't be true of us that with those who had the foundation of the gospel, all of a sudden to abandon it, that the good news is for those in need of a radical heart change. And we should be marked by continually going back to the gospel and being reminded of that which we've been saved from. And this is the warning that he's given us. He goes, like, I know you're looking out for wolves, but there's something else here too, something that you need to be reminded of. Because by returning to the foundation in the gospel, it helps us not only to recognize wolves, it helps us to recognize our own worldliness. Helps us recognize our own worldliness. We may not be those who are without the Spirit. This is how Jude describes the scoffer, right? He says the scoffer is the one who is devoid of the Spirit. They're ungodly. So we may not be the ones who are without the Spirit, but, friends, it is possible to walk as those who are not in step with the Spirit. We have the Spirit. We need to walk in it. As Psalm 1 says even this about the scoffer, we're not even to sit in the seat of the scoffer. We're not to even walk in the way of the wicked. At one point, um, as we were kind of thinking through this series, it was called the danger within, not wolves among us. And it obviously meant that the danger was within the church, but you th- when you begin to think about that, it's not the dangers within the church. You're saying, well, it can't be me. No one thinks of, of themselves. The, friends, the danger is not out there. It's in here. It's in all of our hearts. We're all capable of being these kinds of people. It means not only should we identify the wolves among us, we should identify our own wolf-like beliefs and actions. Here's what Paul says. Paul uses similar language that Jude uses when he says in the last time. In 2 Timothy 3, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. Hello. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying his power. Stop it, Paul. That's enough. We get your point. And he says to avoid these people. And I don't think he means physically. I think he means avoid becoming like them. Avoid becoming like him. So here's the question. Do you see yourself in any of these? I do. I do. And this is part of our growth in holiness is learning to see ourselves before God. There's, there's a feature of, of theology. It's called Coram Deo. Here's what it means. In the face of God or in the presence of God, we do everything. Your work, your families, your relationships, you do everything in the presence of God. You didn't come here this morning and enter into the presence of God. He is always before you. 
And as we look at this list, we begin to identify the ways in which our heart has strayed from these things. We do these things in the presence of God. How have I been a lover of myself? How have I been greedy with my money? How have I been arrogant? The psalmist, Psalm 139 would say, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Can we see ourselves? See, we become a pure church, not by merely keeping the wolves out, but by inviting God in. The danger is not just within the church, it's within us. And God is able to save us and sustain us, but it's in the gospel and not on our own terms. So Jude is saying, you got to return to the foundation. you got to return to the foundation. So Jude says, we must remember this. But again, no one keeps keeps their house at a foundational level. Hebrews said we have to move on, move beyond these elementary things. Quit drinking milk, start eating meat. So how does, how does Jude encourage us to, to build ourselves up? This is going to be a second point. This is verses 20 through 21. So not only to have a foundation of the gospel, he said we must be formed by the love of God. We must be formed by the love of God. You know, they say that the best defense is a good offense. I grew up playing baseball, so we would say things like, good hitting always beats good pitching. Right? Anybody track with me on that? Okay. Sports analogies. It can be tough sometimes. But a good defense is a good offense. And I think in verses 20, 20 through 21 contain the Christian's best offense or offensive strategy. Not to be offensive, but to be a compelling Christian by the character of life, the way that you live before God and others is a compelling picture. Not only that you are a Christian, but you really are a follower and that you love the Lord. See, we're not merely on defense. We have a new life in Christ. We have a whole different strategy. One of the words that we use to describe this process is sanctification. It's holiness. It's not just being saved, it's being saved. The Lord's stripping those things from our life and putting righteousness in its place. Jude uses a few verbs here that I think we should all pay attention to, but I think there's one in particular. There's one verb in particular you need to keep in mind of. It says, and it's in the imperative, it's a command. Keep yourself in the love of God. That's the primary command. And this is what it means to have a Christian life, is you are one who is kept in the love of God. This is central to every aspect of our holiness. This is our center of gravity in the Christian life. Not about what you do, but who are you? Is your center of gravity, does it rotate around this, to keep yourself in the love of God? It's been like that from the very beginning. If you look back in Genesis, we were created by the love of God. It wasn't like God had a lot of time on his hands and didn't have anything else going on. God created the world in love and then he set his affections on people. They're his image bearers. He created in love. In John 3, we're born again by the love of God. Jude tells the church, hey, stay there. Stay in the love of God. Let that be your center of gravity. Let that be your focus. And don't abandon it. Don't move beyond that. Keep yourself in it. It's the foundation. 
And when Jude says keep yourself, there's a couple of ways to understand that, that I think that, that are really important. The first option to understand keep yourself is that uh, God is the one who keeps. We see this in Philippians 2.13 when Paul says to the church there, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He does the work to accomplish his will. So that's option one. Option two, it's on us. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? It's on us. We see this also in the verse before, Philippians 2, chapter, or verse 12, when Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So which, which is it? Which option is it? Is it God working or am I working? Which one is it? It's both. It's both. God works it in and we work it out. It's an easy way to remember that. So being kept in the love of God, God is keeping you in the faith. He is helping you persevere. But some of y'all are making it really hard on yourselves by not actively working to keep yourself in the love of God. If the love of God is central, think about all the times that you feel despairing, doubtful, when you feel like your life is disrupted and things are confusing, Think about that moment. What's one of the things that we fundamentally forget? I am loved by God. No matter what. I am loved by God. So he's saying, God is keeping you, but actively participate in it. Actively participate in it. He's going to give us three ways to do that. Three ways to do that. So we can keep ourselves in the love of God. How are we going to do that? Three supporting things. He says, building yourself up in the most, most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. And then waiting on the mercy of God or the Lord Jesus Christ. So how were they to build themselves in the faith? This is through teaching and instruction. They were to know what God has said and, and done in Jesus. And this is what he meant by contend for the faith. The faith. What is the faith? It's the law, it's the prophets, it's the writings, it's the wisdom literature, it's the Psalms, the beginning, the end. This is what he means by the faith. It's the apostles. And here's the thing, all of them, and this is what Jesus says about all these things, that in the law and the prophets and the writings, they all point to him. They all point to Jesus. So when we contend for the faith, if we don't, if we neglect those things, it means we also probably neglect what it means that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And if Jesus goes, we go with it. The scriptures say Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And if you take the cornerstone off the foundation, the thing crumbles. That's what he's saying. How do we do that? How do we build ourselves up? You study the scriptures daily. This is not, this is not novel. You got to study your Bible reading plans, group studies. We have classes that we offer here at the church, reading together. We have to listen to the word of God preached consistently. It means listening to whole sermons, whole series, coming consistently to this corporate gathering and hearing the word of God preached. Here's my concern about hearing the, the word of God preached. I think we have too many authorities in our life. We have too many voices and they're battling for each other. We watch online stuff. We watch videos. We listen to podcasts. 
I, I think there's, there's, too much, there's too much vying for our, not only our attention, but our affection. But coming and regularly sitting under the authority of God's word is one of the ways that we achieve health. doesn't mean pastors, ministers know everything, but it's the community of faith gathered around the scripture. I think this is what's most important. We memorize scripture. We hide it in our hearts. And then we're accountable to it. So we hide it and then we, we test each other this way. He says they were to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. This meant personally. This meant corporately. We've been doing that for a while, right? Been doing that together corporately. So we call on the Lord that his presence would be with us and that we advance his mission, advance on the promise that he's already made. And this is how we know that the church was alive when we look at the book of Acts. We know that they were alive because they were committed to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers. And this is the way that God advanced his mission. This is why God calls people out is because they learn to listen. They learn to hear his voice and then respond faithfully to it. You've got to spend time at length just listening for the voice of God. This is why we begin a lot of our prayer gatherings in silence. You've got to this is what Paul would say. You've got to take every thought captive. You guys are a- active listening, right? You've got to cut some things out. And then we move into a time of confession and repentance of sin. Ask him to search your hearts. So we need to pray in the spirit. And then we pray until we pray. It's hard work, right? How many of you have been coming to the prayer on Wednesday nights? It's, it's a labor, right? You've got to prepare yourself. You have to work for it. It's a spiritual battle. And he says they were to wait in hope. They already, already they to wait in his mercy. They, were, they already, already received mercy. That's how they came to faith in Christ. But this is, this is looking out ahead at a future mercy when all things would be made right. You're to wait. Building, praying, waiting. Sounds hard, but think about any good thing that you've ever been a part of and how it was built and how you're just kind of hoping this is all going to work out and how things just, they come together and, it's, and it serves you and it serves others and it's, it's an institution that lasts for a lifetime. Family generations do that. Workplaces do that healthy institutions that have longevity and in our service, it takes time to build. It takes time. And this is what he's saying. You got to wait it out. There's a couple of ways this cuts. There's a couple of ways that it cuts in two different re- directions, this truth. It says, first, when God's people have their foundation in the gospel and they build their spiritual house on his love, it leaves little room for the enemy. You have, you have the image of a house, Right? Not everybody can fit in your house. And it would be really strange, literally, if someone who you didn't know, you didn't trust, randomly walked into your house and thought that they belonged there. Right? But a healthy church is full of holy people. And as the house is full of these kind of people, it crowds out the enemy. It becomes increasingly difficult for the enemy to take a residence in a household of God if that household is aware of who should be there and who shouldn't. 
Being built up in the knowledge of his word and dependent prayer helps us to see these kinds of things. And when we're formed by the love of God, we wait on him. We wait on his timing. I think one of the things about false teaching, the reasons that it's so powerful is because they tap into a real desire and a real longing that we have. They tap into it and it makes us anxious. It makes us anxious. It's make, it makes us eager. It makes us angsty because we want it. We want it now. And think about how this shows up in your life. What is it that you really want that you're unwilling to wait upon the Lord for? I think this is what he's getting, getting at. Too many times we try to go around what God is doing because, one, we're not listening. And, two, we're nervous. We're nervous that, that he's not going to come through. And here's what Jude is saying. Don't go around him. Be patient. You may have to wait to the very end, but God's going to come through on it. So it's no other authority. It's no other political party. It's nothing else that we believe will satisfy. We are a people who learn to wait on God. That's one way that it cuts. Here's the other direction that it cuts. Those who are formed by the love of God, they move towards others in love. They move towards others in grace and truth. And this is his third point. He says they have a foundation in the gospel. He says they are a people who are being built up and formed by the love of God. And what's the result of that? For those who have their foundation in the gospel and built up by love, they move towards others in grace and truth. And this is his third point. This is verses 22 through 23. Because the mission of God is not the mere removal of false teaching, Okay? It's not enough that we just try to maintain our doctrinal purity and to say, here's what we believe, and if you don't believe that, you can get out. We have a ministry of reconciliation. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 5. You are an ambassador, you're a delegate from a coming and growing kingdom. You are an agent of reconciliation. Christianity is not a self-centered religion. It's a sacrificial act of love, beginning with God's love for us and extending through others, uh, extending to others. And so we must guard ourselves from false teaching, but we also must take seriously our ministry to others. New Testament is full of this kind of stuff. You're to love one another. You're to serve one another. You're to confess to one another. You're to bear one another's burdens. And that's a privilege, friends, that we get to bear one another's burdens because as we do that, here's, here's how that cycle works. Because if you're like me, I, I'm, I'm always nervous. I, I don't have enough energy or resource to help people. So I just kind of keep to myself. But as I give myself to other people, if, if we're doing this right, as I'm giving myself to other people, you know what's happening? You're given to me. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how God built his church. Because we've all been in the same plight. We are all those people who are not seeking after God. We are all those who, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's a reminder of what Paul says. When we think about this responsibility that I have, Paul says, you need to remember, because he gives a similar list that he did in 2 Timothy. He says, and such were some of you. 
Such were some of you. Some of you were the lovers of self. Some of you were the greedy ones. Some of you were the arrogant ones. But there's a ministry that has come to us. Somebody shared the gospel with us. Somebody told us about the faithfulness of God. Someone told us about the goodness of God. Friends, this is our ministry to one another. We are those who have a foundation in the gospel, being built up by the love of God in his presence. And because of that, we do that for other people too. We pursue the mission in grace and truth. And kind of as we finish up time here, I want us to see Jude's game plan. He's going to describe three people that we should be mindful of. He's been addressing the believer. He's going to hey, believer, to encourage you, what does it mean to be spiritually formed? What does a Christian life look like? He's given it to you. And now he says, I want you to be mindful of maybe at least three kinds of people that are going to be among you. They should respond to these people with grace and truth. Three kinds of people. The first one is this. They have to have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. We should be compassionate to those who are confused, who have been affected by false teaching. If you've been in, in doubt for any length of time, it could be very disorienting because why? The very foundational questions of your life or the very foundational meaning of your life is in question. Maybe you don't know who you are. You don't know where you're going. You don't know why you're here. You can't figure out where the, where the problem is. So we should be merciful and minister to those people who have doubts. We should be open to their questions and be patient in their responses. They're probably not going to be really clean in the way that responds. It's like, just have faith. And it's more complicated than that. But to be patient when there's those who doubt. Here's the second person. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. So it's not just someone who's been affected by false teaching and having some doubts. This is, this is someone who's in the thick of it. And we should act urgently because they've been deceived. Do you know anybody like this in your life? Jew knows... This is what this whole letter is about. Jude knows that it's, it's a serious matter. And so they were to seize them, take them by force. Take them by force. If we're looking to win the battle against false teaching, then the costs have to be counted. And here's what that means, friends. That means you may have to lose a relationship in order for them to gain the relationship that they actually need. I mean, somebody in your life that you have to willing snatch them out in order, and you might lose that relationship for a period of time, but, but maybe by God's grace, how can you be reconciled? But above all else, they need to be in the relationship with Jesus, and we got to call them out. I do this, and we, we recognize this when someone's in danger, there's a kind of an urgency and a way of approaching that that's different than if there is no problem. And there is no emergency. Here's the thing. If my son, which they are, I have two sons, and both of them are, are prone to chase the ball out into the street by the house. When they run out and I see a car coming, you, you know how I don't say what needs to be said? Read Luke. Please come back. 
hey, guys, watch out, please, there's a car coming. Right? I'll be a terrible father. Matter of fact, I'm not even shouting. I'm not even shouting from the garage. Read Luke! I'm probably saying that, throwing my body out to where they are to save them. It's that urgent. And it's not, I'm, I'm not yelling and throwing them around because I don't love them. I do that because I do. I don't want them to be hurt. I don't want people who are caught in deception to press further into that darkness. And so we have to pull them out. And the last one is this. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These are those who are darkened by the kind of deception. And this is the hardest kind of it all. But we still show mercy. But it's a severe mercy. And this would be, when I, when I think about the kind of, the way that we would interact from this person, I think we, we, we would be, be good to reflect on Ephesians chapter 6 with a helmet of salvation and a breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shoes of the gospel of peace. Put on the full armor of God. Prepare yourself in your own holiness. And then, and then begin to show mercy to this person because these people are dangerous. We must be careful. They're, they're crafty. They're cunning. They have probably led a number of other people astray to put the full armor of God in the face of them. And this is what Jude says. This is the way Jude begins to address the people of God, because next week he's going to wrap it all up with just a praise to God. But the way he ends here, he gives us a picture to say, okay, yes, you should be worried about the wolves, but you should also be concerned about yourself. Friends, we cannot move beyond the gospel. We can't move beyond it. We are to build ourselves up in love. And then because of that life that we have before God and this love for Christ and what he has done for us, it compels us. It compels us to move towards others with grace and truth because that's what we received. I've been thinking about uh, Mark 9.50 a lot, Mark chapter 9, verse 50. I've been thinking about that a lot recently. Um, in Mark 9... It says, talk about uh, light, salt and light. You know, if salt loses its saltiness, how, how can it be good anymore? And this is what Mark 9.50 says, Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Um, there's a woman that goes by the name of Rosaria Butterfield, which is just an awesome name. Um, write that one down for your kids. Rosaria Butterfield. It's a great name. She has a really incredible story. I can't go into all of it here, but she has a book that's sort of written out of what Christ has redeemed her from. And it's a book on hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. When we share the gospel with people, and we call them to place their faith in Christ. 
That is a beautiful thing in itself. You see people go from, from death to life, from darkness to light. You see this lifting of a burden. It's a beautiful picture. It can even happen today. But you know what we don't do? Is the gospel doesn't just leave us there. We just don't leave people with salvation. We invite them into this new community where we serve and love one another and we proclaim Christ together and we remind each other of these truths. And here's what Rosaria Butterfield gets at in her, in her book, um, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, is I want you to believe the gospel and I also want you to receive you in my home so that we can care for one. I want to give you a meal. And in the book, she reflects on this verse, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. How many of you have ever heard something along the lines of, hey, the sin, love the sinner? Have you guys ever heard that before? Sometimes, in some cases, people translate, have salt among yourselves and be with peace with one another as hate the sin, love the sinner. But she doesn't think that does justice to what that text is actually saying. Here's how she translates it. Love the sinner, hate your own sin. And I think that that's a, that's a radically different thing than to hate the sin, love the sinner. It's just love the sinner. This is what Christ has done for us. We weren't looking for him. We weren't seeking after him. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. He incarnated himself. He came from heaven to earth. He became like us in every way so that he could be a sympathetic, an empathetic high priest who went to the cross, endured the pain and the suffering for our sin so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus loved the sinner. This is always the question about Jesus' ministry. Why is he eating and gathering with sinners? It's because that's who he came for. He came for you and me. So to love the sinner and to hate our own sin. Here's what Jude is getting at in all of this, is that you can simultaneously try to keep the church pure and to reach out to others. This is not a holy huddle. We didn't get here to congratulate ourselves this morning. We're here to worship God. And I think we've done that. Just thinking about that last song that we sang. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. With every breath that I'm able, I will sing of the goodness of God. That's why we're here, friends. We have nothing else to say. We have nothing else to share. We don't come here on our own terms. We are those who belong to God, who have been loved by God, who he has pursued us and cared for us. And so when at all costs, right? We've heard it before, but we have to have a redefinition of what that means. We have to understand that the win is that Jesus has and will continually buy back sinners. This is what it means to be redeemed. You mean you are bought back. You have been ransomed. 
That's the win. Because that's what Christ has done. He's won our salvation. He has purchased it for us. And we have to redefine what it means for the church together to win. But we also have to redefine the costs. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you resources. It's going to cost you relationships. It's going to cost whatever way of life that you have right now. It's going to cost you something. No one follows Christ and doesn't endure costs. But he's winning people back. He's still saving. He's still redeeming. I think he can do it this year, this morning. And so wherever you are this morning, it's like what Matthew 9 says. Come all to your weary. Matthew 11. Come all who are weary and heavy laden. He'll give you rest. He's not repelled. Jesus is not repelled by your sin. Your sin and your hurt and your hangups and your trauma actually pulls him closer he wants to be there, meet, meet you there. And so just to echo what Jude has been sharing this whole time, we are a gospel people. And so we're going to return to that foundation here. If you're here this morning, you don't know what that truth is. Today is the, the day to lay the, salve, the, the foundation, placing your faith in Jesus. So if you are weary of your sin, you can come this morning. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've got to ask yourself and, and Philip asked it already, but where are you? I think one of the fundamental problems that we have is learning to see ourselves truly, to look at ourselves in the mirror and give an honest, faithful evaluation. Where am I in Christ? So if you're a Christian in the room, where are you? How's your foundation? You may not, you, you may not know what it means to follow Jesus. And I can tell you, you can look around. The people here, at the Gilmer campus of New Beginnings, they can help you follow Jesus. Say, so I don't know, I don't know what it looks like. This is one of the responsibilities that we have for each other. So you can do that today. You can find somebody. Here's the thing: you're being kept in the love of God. He loves you. He loves you. You're being kept in the love of God. He hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't changed addresses. He hasn't traced his MO. He's still operating the same way he always has. The question is, how are you keeping yourself in the love of God? Are you building yourself in the faith? Are you praying, trusting in yourself, hoping in him? If you've been affected by false teaching, whether you are the offended or the offender, I can tell you the grace of God extends that entire spectrum. If you are those who are offended, if those you are, have offended. The grace of God is available for you to this morning. There are going to be some people here at the front to pray for you as we respond. Here's what I would say. In his mercy, in his mercy, come, be prayed for, share what's going on, invite those people in your life. This is what Jude is trying to get at. This is what it means to be part of the community of faith. So in his mercy, come. Would you pray with me? Father, thankful for your grace, thankful for the comforts of the gospel. God, that we can know you, be loved by you, and then share in that faith together. So as we respond now and as we sing together, would you do the work that only you could do and draw people to yourself? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.